kind of beer do you like? Heineken. Heineken? F*** that Paps Blue Ribbon! Hello and welcome to The Lodgers, Sorted Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined as always by Kate Rennebaum. Hello, everybody. And I'm very excited to announce that this week we're joined by a uh, film writer and critic. You can find his work at rodriebert.com as well as the New York Times. He's also the author of Robert De Niro, Anatomy of an Actor from K du Cinema. It's Glenn Kenny. Hey, thank you for having me. So nice to be talking to you both. We are very excited to get into this. Yes. <laughs> yes, we are. Um, one very, very quick thing that I have to say before we get started. We've been having some issues with the feed over the last couple of weeks. Many of you have hit us up on Twitter to talk about it. Um, so I need to hear from you again this week to hear if it's fixed. We've done. We've made some changes on the back end. So hopefully the episode will appear on your feed readers and can be downloaded as normal. Uh, but if there is still an issue, uh, please let us know. And if there isn't an issue, also let us know. I'm not just fishing for notifications. I really need to know if it's fixed. <laughs> so anyway, just throwing that out there. Now we're done. Okay. <laughs> the Return, Part 12. Uh, a lot to get into, but um, as per usual, Glenn, uh, we, we have to sort of um, get you in the club here and ask, well, what's your experience been of uh, of The Return so far, and how has it affected your view of uh, of Lynch and Twin Peaks? Well, I gotta say, I've just, um, I, I, I'm just living for this. I mean, the idea that uh, Lynch would would come back into action with with uh, you know filmed entertainment after Inland Empire and after saying he was kind of done with it, and also to to actually revive the world of Twin Peaks, uh, that was such an intriguing place to be, and and that has so much relation to pretty much everything else he's done. I mean, it, it all, it all, it all kind of works together in a way, even, even relative to Dune. So, I mean, it's just, I have to be honest, I, I haven't been watching this show critically at all. In other words, I haven't been taking notes. I haven't been, you know, trying to keep up with uh, the connections. I, I, you know, I only just recently, you know, broke out my copy of Mark Frost's uh, secret history of Twin Peaks um, book. Um, I, I've just been I've just been enjoying it, just sort of living in the environment. You know, I've been going back to other Lynch films, um, uh, Wild at Heart, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive. Kind of looking at those not for clues, but just for a, a general, just generally getting into this the atmosphere of Lynch. Lynch is a filmmaker I've followed since Eraserhead. Um, you know, I saw Eraserhead when it first came out when I was, I was a teenager. You know, and um, it took me a long, you know, it took me a little while to wrap my head around it when I first saw it, and then I saw it a, a couple of times between 1978 and 1980, and then once The Elephant Man came out, um, you know, just the prospect of him doing The Elephant Man blew my mind so much. Um, that uh, and then it came out and it just it you know I don't think I've ever been really I can I can I can't say I've ever been really genuinely disappointed with anything he's ever done. Yeah. Um, that sounds like that sounds like real fanboy <laughs> stuff. And and so be it if it is. But you know, frankly, no, I, I can't say I've ever been profoundly disappointed by anything he's done. 
I've been, you know, I've, I've had mixed feelings about some stuff that he's done, but more often than not, it's just, I like his world. I like his way of seeing things. I like his way of hearing things. I'm just delighted to be in that world for as long as it's around to, to inhabit. That, that's, that's been a pretty common theme of our reactions to this, is that we're, I think, personally, I'm amazed that I uh, was able to be alive at the moment that Lynch decided to uh, produce 18 new hours of, of moving image material. I mean, it's... It's a cultural milestone. I don't think it it's, is. I don't think it's hyperbole to say that. I mean, and I do feel lucky to be, to, I mean, it's the only... You know, my, my, my domestic life and work life, which is very good aside, those, those are the three things that, are, that make me positively <laughs> glad to be around at this moment in history. Everything else can kind of like go, go hang. Glenn, I was at a sort of get-together with some film critics. I think, I think you know some of them. Peter Labuza was there. There were a few other Labuza. people. Labuza! Yes, and it was, uh, it was very fun. This was last weekend in Boston, and we all sat down at the beginning. And, uh, you know, I think we waited the requisite five minutes before somebody brought up Twin Peaks. And I forgot who said this, but somebody's immediate response was, I mean, is there anything else worth watching right now? And I, <laughs> I, I mean, I think it is actually quite true. I mean, it's for me, it's really dimmed the lights on a lot of what's going on in terms of sort of cinema that's available this summer. I mean, everything else really feels like the, uh, the energy is a little lower. Um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's stunning. <laughs> What was, Labu- what was what was Labuza doing in Boston? Uh, he, he was there on a research trip, actually, uh, as part of a fellowship. They were going on a tour of different archives. Um, yeah, and for people who, uh, audience members, this is Peter Labuza, who has a podcast called The Cinephiliacs, which we've recommended here a couple of times, and it's very great, so go check that out. He's podcasting's good boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to say, what what I've been really excited about has been you know, you would think for a show like this, especially considering how long it's been since the original seasons, that yeah. people would be watching and just be angry at it, you know, just for, for the decisions that it's making. And I have seen some frustration, and this is probably a good week to discuss the concept of frustration, but I just, I keep going through these Twitter threads and seeing all these people comment and saying, you know, I've never seen anything like it. This is wonderful. I feel like anything can happen. People are just seem to be overwhelmed with... Um, with uh, gratefulness for, for what they're seeing, which is really remarkable if you think about how challenging um, the show so frequently is. Maybe that's a good segue to start talking about part 12 of The Return, which, um, you know, last week's episode, I think, was one of the most sort of obviously engaging in terms of its uh, pacing and how much sort of overt humor there was. And this week, um, as we've been getting so frequently... Um, we got kind of, we got some whiplash this week, and I think some viewers got some as well. And I'm not even sure uh, where to start with that, except that for any viewers who are hoping to get a Dougie-free episode, you almost got your wish. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, yeah, my, my husband pointed out as well, we've had, I think, at least two and possibly three episodes with uh, no Evil Cooper as well. I mean, that's mm-hmm. been it's been kind of a McLaughlin light in some sense, particularly this episode is McLaughlin light, but... Um, yeah, I think this episode, I think your point about Whiplash is very well taken in terms of how this episode felt. I think for audience members who maybe didn't follow this extra textual uh, clue around this episode, there was scuttlebutt on the internet that this was maybe going to be another episode um, that that we should be warned about in the sense that there were warnings about part eight, that it was going to be very, very big deal television. Um, yeah. That was the only extent to which I thought that was trolling. And I don't think that... You know, I don't think the episode itself is an example of trolling, but for Showtime's marketing department to 
market this as must-see television, and also <laughs> to name it "Let's Rock," which is a piece of dialogue in the in the in the in the in the, in the part. Lynch doesn't call them episodes; he calls them parts. It's a piece of dialogue in the part, and Lynch designates the parts numerically. He doesn't give them those titles. Those titles mm-hmm. are, are dreamt up by the Showtime marketing department. I learned when I wrote in uh, the Times about in my streaming column about the uh, cinematic sources of, of of Part Eight. But uh, let's rock being the uh, a phrase that will resonate for for Twin Peaks fans and fans of uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk with the film as being uh, what's scrawled on the windshield of that old car right before Agent Chet Desmond disappears. So, I mean, I think that was, to a certain extent, can be conceived as trolling and was maybe unfair play on the part of Showtime's marketing department. But to talk about the episode itself, I think is kind of, it's a really interesting thing. And I I wrote, uh, my thought about that, the episode is that it's almost the as as much of an epiphany as ep, at part eight was. This is a kind of frustrating anti-epiphany, which means it might just be an epiphany. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly plays with a with a with a convention of television storytelling, particularly nighttime soap television storytelling yeah. or soap opera television storytelling in and of itself, which is the episode which is kind of like the pause episode, the mm-hmm. episode where yeah. narrative threads kind of regroup and settle down and a few pieces of exposition are put forward but doesn't really move anything ahead. Those are episodes that are common. They're, they're almost ubiquitous in actual soap operas because if you ever watch an actual soap opera, I remember in my early 20s watching Days of Our Lives because um, I was a bum, Um, and wasn't doing anything. And I would watch Days of Our Lives, which was my grandmother's favorite soap opera. But I remember watching Days of Our Lives for almost like a year with some regularity and and the actual storyline going from point A halfway to point B by the end of my year of watching it. And I realized this this is... this is crazy. Nothing is happening on this show. How are they able to make this show work and get people hooked on it with nothing happening and i realize it's because they just it's like a it's like a fishing hook with just a little dangle of plot information that looks tantalizing enough and then you're hooked and then you wake up and it's a year later so i mean this style of storytelling is not uncommon but what uh, what part 12 does is it comedically i think to a large extent and and also with a very typical lynchian emphasis on damp uncomfortableness it takes that kind of idea of storytelling to to a to a absurdist you know a a high art absurdism level like if you ever if you ever read ionesco like the lesson uh, you know ionesco's played a lesson where the professor is just going on and on and on and on and on to the student until he kills her um <laughs> but he's you know and he but for the uh, the whole, and I remember this because I was I played the professor in a production of the, the lesson in high school. I forgot most of my lines. It was mortifying, but he's saying nothing for an hour, and then he yeah. kills the student. You know, so uh, the the scene between Audrey and her husband is is a real example of genuine capital A absurdism applied to something that, like the original series 
of, of Twin Peaks that aired on network television in the 90s that has a soap opera kind of construction or buttressing, let's say. That's all absolutely right. And I, I love the way that you kind of separate out um, maybe some of the more overt conventions of soap opera storytelling, which is, you know, the performance style and the uh, particular narrative threads that are so common to something like soap opera from the timing of the scenes and the pacing of the scenes. Because I think that was something we talked about in the original run of the series, but this was actually quite... This was maybe what attracted Lynch uh, particularly to the motives of soap opera storytelling in the original run was the ability to sort of stretch out scenes endlessly and really live in the world and not be kind of under the same constraints to have to make narrative moves all the time. And I think people have really commented in The Return about how it, it feels like The Return doesn't really have much of, this, of the soap opera uh, generic framework the way the original one did. And I, and I think that's right. But I do think that The Return of Audrey, very interestingly, is the first scene where we've really had the soap opera mode be that present and that obvious. And I think there are a lot of really interesting points about that. I mean, it's been interesting to watch people on Twitter make claims about that scene. I, I've seen people make claims about that scene that it, it's, not, uh, it's not a real scene, it's not reality. Instead, it's Audrey acting on maybe something like Invitation to Love, which was, of course, the show within a show in the original run, or mm -hmm. that she's dreaming. I mean, it, there's basically a lot of work being done by fans and, and audience members, I think, to sort of explain away the very complex and convoluted plot stuff that's added in in that scene, all of the new character names, all of this stuff, and yeah. It could be. I mean, it could be all of those things, because it is, it's such a discreet, as in D-I-S-C-R-E-T-E, -E, um, morsel in the middle of this episode that doesn't really relate to anything else, except yeah. for the fact that she says she's going to the roadhouse. That's yeah. an indication that it's not invitational love, but it's that she's still in Twin Peaks and that she's going to the roadhouse. Now, who are those two girls at the end who are, you know, every, uh, the last couple of episodes have had these booth scenes with these two girls, two young women, I should say, uh, different ones each time who are in various states of emotional distress or actual physical disrepair. I believe the, the young one played by uh, the very talented singer, songwriter, uh, Sky, Sky Ferreira, Ferreira yeah. with yeah. the rash, that the, the, the very Lynchian rash uh, in, uh, was it part 11 or Maybe so? Maybe 10? 10, part 10? 10 yeah, 10, it was in yeah. 10. But, you know, the same kind of camera setups, the same kind of, dialogue where you know that something is really amiss but you're not sure what the context is so that's another thread I, how audrey's appearance relates to that because she talks about going to the roadhouse you you can see that one of these young women is maybe somebody who she's looking for or not um so it is very tantalizing and i enjoy following some of the uh, theories that are very elaborately worked out and very seem very logical there was one that mm -hmm. predicted that episode 11 or maybe even i keep saying episode part 11 or maybe even part 12 would be when dale when cooper finally came came to possess uh his him, himself again because his body was sent through another dimension 10 days before his <laughs> mind was and his mind needed to catch up it's an interesting point. Uh, Maybe the softball point. did it, you guys. Maybe the softball <laughs> did it. Maybe. I mean, I, I think, you know, there's a certain extent where we're, the audience expectation is that at some point, Ancient Cooper's going to snap out of it. I don't think of that character that McLaughlin's playing as Dougie. I think of him as Agent Cooper in this state of unconsciousness or paralysis or maybe even a medically induced coma or something because we see the real Dougie in action right before he's he's taken out and uh, 
it's, a, it's clearly a completely different person, even to the extent that, you know, um, this person who everybody believes is Dougie has lost all this weight and is in amazing shape and all this other stuff. So I don't think of him as Dougie. I, I, I know that everybody calls him Dougie, but I think of him as Cooper. And one of the most emotionally affecting things about the return is I'm really worried about him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I worry about him every episode. That's one thing that made um, part 12 less stressful in some ways. I mean, the pauses and the waiting and the lack of exposition are all parts of what made part 12 tense and nerve wracking in certain respects. But at least I didn't have to worry about what was happening to Agent Cooper slash Dougie. All he did was get hit by a softball. It's a good episode <laughs> the, um, for him. The, the one thing, I, I think that's sort of one reason that people were exceptionally, from, I think this, this I think can be, can be fairly termed as perhaps the most broadly uh, frustrating episode of The Return, at yeah. least in terms of how people experienced it. I think one of the reasons is that this episode makes clear that Dougie's really not made any progress. Like, you might expect that based on having had some coffee and having had some pie and, like, yeah. you know, having seen the heels or what, you know, all these, you know, evocative moments that we've had where he's kind of perked up has sort of, like, brought him along a continuum to, like, slightly further down the line to Cooperness. But no. That's not, that does not <laughs> seem to be the case. I, by the way, we just have to give a shout out to that little kid playing Sunny Jim. The moment when the softball yeah. boink, boinks off of McLaughlin and the kid just sort of slumps down in despair over his father's lack of response <laughs> is pretty, pretty funny. Uh, but yeah, but, but sorry, go ahead, Simon. I, w- I wanted to circle back to this idea of uh, sort of contextlessness because, I mean, obviously the Audrey scene, which we can talk about in more detail a little bit later, is important for this and the way it just sort of drops in in the middle of this stuff we've seen before. Because even the very first scene, the very first sequence of the episode, which is uh, Cole and Albert sort of inducting Tammy Tammy into the club of people who are going to die or disappear. (laughs) 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 Um, Some would say perhaps not soon enough. You know, they're in this very red roomish space. You know, it's got the red curtains. Uh They've they've got... uh, They've got Cole's wine. It was not clear to me where they were, not even just like what the building is, but where were they like in the country at this point? Right, That's right. True, they don't yeah. have the they don't have the title saying uh, you know, Buckhorn, South Dakota in this case. Yeah. Right off the bat, it's, you know, it's setting you up for just like a constant a constant set of uh, of contextless sort of yeah. encounters. It's extending and withholding at the same time. I mean, this is the first time that we hear explicitly the connection made between uh, what these agents are investigating and Roswell, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, impo- that's not unimportant in terms of, of narrative information. It's just one bit given out in, you know, over several minutes. I find the whole scene fascinating when Albert walks in on Cole yeah. with the um, woman who may or may not be a sex worker. And may or may not uh, be a mime. May or may not be a mime. <laughs> but who's played by former Bond girl uh, Berenice Maju. Oh. Uh, I think she was the Bond girl in Quantum of Solace. What's interesting about that is not only that we have this really long scene just so Albert can tell Gordon Cole something we already know about the text between yeah. Diane and, and Evildale, but... Um, also that um, and I, I do I do find this fascinating about the development of Gordon Cole as a character so that Albert just sort of silently expresses his disapproval of what seems to be a fairly consistent habit 
Mm-hmm. And um, this goes back to the the part where um, David Duchovny, uh, playing the, the the trans woman who is Gordon's superior, giving him a slight dressing down for ha- squiring Kathy around, uh, Tammy around in the first place. This whole idea of Gordon as this aged or aging horn dog who still has, who you know, who has success in these in these areas. Uh, but is also chastised by his professional peers for for being kind of unprofessional. I'm not I'm not someone who likes to dig for biographical or autobiographical tidbits in people's art, but it's interesting how certain things come through in in Lynch's world yeah. that kind of reflect, even obliquely or in a refracted manner, on you know his own personal life and his own. You know, Krista Bell, who plays Tammy, is someone that, that Lynch has uh, kind of mentored. She's been kind of an artistic protege for him and also a model, you know, mm-hmm. for some of his photography. So we don't know really too much about the specifics of the relationship, but we know how people think about these kind of relationships. Uh, they're reflexive, kind of knee-jerk reactions to men of a certain age getting involved, even on an artistic level, with yeah. women that much younger and to see that sort of so frankly made a component of the character in this context to me is really um resonant in a lot of in a lot of really interesting ways i I feel like i have a i have a lot to say i think as simon probably could imagine i have a lot to say about the uh about the french woman scene um the, the question of the representations of women and like how lynch has been sort of relating to the kind of um questions of misogyny that I think have like haunted his work, uh, in my opinion, unfairly for most of his career, these sorts of things have been a kind of constant topic of discussion on the show. Um, for me, the, the French woman scene was sort of fabulous for any number of reasons. Uh, for me, I think it, it put the final kind of nail in the coffin of this question as to whether Lynch in, in structuring the return, um, is, is purposefully playing the, the character of Cole and setting up the character of Cole in such a way as to put the questions of Lynch's relationships to women in, in the content of the show, put them front and center, investigate them, sort of unpack them. I mean, I, I really think he is. I think there were early episodes, uh, we talked very early on about how in the pilots, uh, no, it was sort of episode part four, I think maybe part three or four. Some of the sequences between Lynch and Tammy, it, it was difficult to tell whether they were happening because the show wanted to sort of point these out as a thing that the show is going to be dealing with, or because it was really simply Lynch unawares ogling this woman as an object for sort of fetishing and fetishizing. And I, I was never sure about that, but it was hard to find exact scenes to point to, to prove the opposite point. I think until you get to the French lady scene where it is so clear that Lynch is so, is, is setting the scene up to be so over the top and, to use the duration of the scene to have this woman perform such an extreme set of like ticks and, and examples around a kind of very performative femininity, right? Everything is just this completely extreme form of femininity. So there's that element of it. And then on the other side of it, you have Cole looking at her in this way that is never quite leering. It's, it's, it's almost like he's just sort of thrilled to be around this woman and he can't believe this mm-hmm. is happening. Um, which is its own thing. And as a result, the episode, the, the scene strikes a really interesting balance between both pointing out, like, the, the sort of maybe the questions around these portrayals of, like, femininity and the role of women sometimes in these scenarios on the one hand. But then on the other hand, actually, you feel quite, um, 
I don't know, there's almost a sense in which you understand uh, Alberts or something to be almost envious of this connection that they have. And, and it's not, I mean, as you pointed out, she may or may not be a sex worker. I don't mean they have some emotional connection, but, but more that they just seem to be very much enjoying each other's company. And like, it's, so it's not a sort of condescending view on this, this woman and her role either. I, I just thought it was a really fascinating sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a thing that Lynch has in common with Hitchcock, and you know, Hitchcock is a filmmaker that Lynch admires a great deal, but, you know, there's a lot more to their perspective on sex and sexual relations than yeah. a superficial reading might, might grant. And this is, this is evident, uh, you know, Robin Wood, he didn't like Lynch enough to, to really explore this. But he certainly explored it in his studies of Hitchcock. And um, Lynch makes movies about desires. And, you know, in terms of articulating desires, you know, he deals with, with archetypes and you know the archetypes are old archetypes they're maybe outdated archetypes but they're they're very they're very much of a they're very they're very personally felt i was just um i was just rereading um molly haskell the great film critic molly yeah. haskell's book um the from reverence to rape uh, a, a recent a new edition of it and um she writes in there about Blue Velvet, and it's pretty fascinating talking about Blue Velvet relative to uh, Hitchcock and the whole idea of the male gaze. The structuralist approach with its seductive methodology uh, has held tyrannical sway for the last 10 years to become part of the jargon of serious criticism throughout the country. But the doubts to its viability, other than a, as a provocative starting point, remain. Not the least interesting question was why these self-proclaimed radicals would spend so much time and energy on obsolete bourgeois artists rather than attending to the progressive and politically acceptable lines of feminist and the avant-garde. Moreover, Mulvey and Johnston neglected the context in which the films they studied, talking about films using the male gaze, were made and seen. That tremendous audience diversity, that lack of consensus, which is such a thorn in the side of sociologists and theoreticians. For example, what about female audiences? Now, when talking about Blue Velvet, uh, she calls it a retro-Hitchcockian reverie, that revisits the virgin whore family from the point of view of a 50s adolescent plunked down in an 80s Walpurgis Knox <laughs> setting. Blonde good girl Laura Dern is held in mock, wholesome, pristine opposition. I don't agree with mock there, but let's go on. To the libidinous is Labella Rossellini, who debauch, whose debauches with super kink Dennis Hopper provides the sensational keyhole gazing for the Lynch surrogate. But in the messy here and now, with audiences and feminists divided over both Brian De Palma's Dressed to Kill and Blue Velvet, there is no consensus, no last word as to what is correct, what a demeaning social portrait of a woman, and certainly no one has given the theoreticians the mandate to speak for all of us. Admittedly, um, both women in Blue Velvet are a projection of male fantasy. Still, it might be argued that both heroines, Isabella Rossellini, at least in Blue Velvet, elude the efforts of the male to understand or save them. So... Again, just to say, in dealing with these archetypes of male, of cis male heterosexual desire, I think it's a mistake to presume that Lynch is doing only one thing or that he's doing it only as a superficial level or that he's not. There's this whole, there's this whole argument about humanizing characters, about creating strong characters and creating the, this whole idea that art is supposed to provide models and lessons and be upright and be, um, you know, uh, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent, and not talk about the things that cause us unease. Yeah. Um, that, that's a whole. That's a whole discussion for another time. But I think 
in, in this context, you know, he's looking at, he's being both very funny and very frank, I think, in, in, in these scenes, like the ones that we're talking about. I give him a lot of credit. And I, don't, I you know, I, it's not as if this series isn't filled with female characters who are kind, competent, professional, yeah. upstanding, but everybody's got their, you know, everybody's got their own little something. That's what the, you know, the, 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 that's what Lynch's yeah. work is about. It's yeah. tough to, to not think of like, you know, I, I saw, I forget who it was, but I saw someone complaining about the fact that, um, you know, in, in, in this episode we have, uh, Lynch sort of carousing with this young woman. And then when we meet Audrey, she's, you know, with this, um, with the Clark Middleton character and, by the way, I just want to point out for because I I saw some references to uh, to Clark Middleton as a little person, uh, which mm-hmm. he's not. Uh, he and Sherilyn Fenn are the same height, so let's not do that. He's just shot that way. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's true. Sitting much lower. Yeah. People create these. You know, here's an example of of you know Lynch and this ageism and these stereotypes. But then you think back to you know a few episodes ago when when we had Diane, and we see that she has this like rotating cast of boy toys who yeah. come in and out of her apartment. Like there's. There's such a multitude of of personalities, and it's not it's not just along gender lines either. I mean, if you think about all the horrible, horrible men who we've you know the um, the your, your Richard Horn types who we've seen just terrorizing people throughout the season, but then we've I think one of the most unexpected treats for me is how much time we've gotten to spend with Carl Rudd, played by Harry Dean Stanton, yeah. um, who has uh-huh. just been mm-hmm. a total total treasure. And you know this yeah. the scene this week where you know he he forbids uh, a guy on on his property to from uh, from selling his blood that's it's a, just that like a, a beautiful scene weird yeah. heartwarming scene, scene. Yeah. and deputy hawk too how upstanding yeah how how much upstandingness can you handle man he's got mm-hmm. it all um i the one thing i've been i've been trying to think about i think more and more particularly since part 8 actually because again this this piece that i've been taunting everyone with that i wrote for cinemascope online about part 8 that will come out eventually uh we're probably going <laughs> to release it now maybe like in um early september to pair with the metrograph screening uh that will be programmed in honor of part 8 so anyway that's when that's going to show up but in that in that piece i talk i tried to talk a little bit about the kind of musical structure of the episode and so i've started to think about this more and more in relation to the return and one of the things that i've, I've noticed in episodes like these is that I think Lynch is far more interested in organizing the way the overall episodes work, organizing them in terms of how you might think about organizing a kind of musical structure. Like that he's he's more concerned with sort of emotional movements, right? Between these scenes where the, the sort of emotional tenor is very much about like care and kindness, the way that it is with the Carl Rod character. Uh, and then you move into a scene that might be much more about the sort of like lingering pain or sort of um, misery that is uh, attends to these sort of after effects of violence, which I think we should come back to and talk about as well, because I think that's actually a major theme of this episode is the returns fascination with like ripples and lingering violence across spaces and times and all of these things. But, you know, that as a sort of mode and then the other mode being just sort of kind of pure terror, right? I mean, Lynch is sort of more interested in moving between these large chunks of things that function like this than he is in terms of sort of... um, yeah, moving in a kind of straightforward narrative way or a way that is always necessarily about ratcheting up tension or releasing tension. I mean, last week was an was an unusual example of that in the sense that we had this sort of first 30 minutes that was clearly designed to kind of build up to a very specific um, point in the middle. And a lot of that had to do with kind of narrative and character movement. But anyway, so that, that's just one thing I've been thinking about here is these sort of balances between the, the different emotional registers. Well, this is, you know, here's how people talk about how 
is cinema like television and how is television is like cinema and how they're similar and dissimilar. The thing about narrative, um, conventional narrative television episodes that is not like cinema is that they are bound to narrative, you know, which is not the definition of cinema. If you accept the definition of cinema as propagated by Andre Tarkovsky, who said cinema is sculpting in time. TV shows do not sculpt in time. <laughs> you know, sitcoms don't sculpt. You will never see a Seinfeld episode that you could characterize as sculpting in time. <laughs> Maybe Sopranos? Yeah, we're getting a little closer there, definitely. Um, Twin Peaks sculpts in time. Yeah. And what you have... Uh, in, in, in part 12 are a lot of big marble blocks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That are, that are very deliberately unsculpted, uh, that are just sort of laid out before the viewer. Uh, and again, this is, I think the approximation of, but, it, but it's also, but it also kind of subtly formally satirizes the television convention of, of the pause episodes. Yeah. So it's both at the same time. It's both very television and very cinema. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the the scene at the at the very or very near the end of the episode before we return to the roadhouse, where um, Diane, I I don't fully understand that scene. I'm going to be honest with you, where she sees the coordinates on the arm and then says coordinates plus I, two. I, um, I th- wasn't it supposed to just be like a, a, mnemonic, a mnemonic device? Like she had just memorized the code by matching it up with C O something like that. Something maybe. like that. Anyway, but yeah, go ahead. But um, anyway, the way that like that's a very like table setting episode thing to do, where you get a scene and its entire purpose is to understand that oh yeah, everything is going to converge in Twin Peaks at some point, <laughs> but it's not yeah. doing that yet. Right, um, right, right. But he is also making time. For... It's like you kind of already knew this. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Unlike the unlike the business of Roswell, which you could have inferred or what you saw coming. Here, they're just going with the Diane and the coordinates thing. They're just going full out. But you already knew this. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, yeah. he's also taking like five minutes, not just for you know this French sex worker mime lady, uh, you know, slowly <laughs> shuffling out of the room. And and I think. One of the two or three funniest sequences of, yeah. of the of the entire show so far, but then to have that be followed up with like a classic bit of Twin Peaks emotional whiplash, albeit not one that I noticed being accompanied to music like so most of them were, uh-huh. uh, so many of them were, uh, where um, you know Cole turns to Albert and says, you know, oh, yeah. sometimes I worry about you, and like I don't know exactly what the production timeline was. Or like how if they could have known how that was going to land, given Miguel Ferrer's passing, but that yeah. was to me one of the most touching moments of the entire show, and, and to have them within within a hair's breadth of each other was just breathtaking to me. I I found that scene that's a very touching scene, and and the other part of it as well is this interesting lead up to it, where you have Cole sort of telling these uh, like awkward mm-hmm. jokes, right, about the um. The woman whose daughter has gone missing, she's going to turn up and, and these kinds of things. And, and Cole sort of looks at him and wants him to participate in, in the joke. And, and Albert won't. And, and so th- this is what spurs on Cole to look concerned more and more and then to say, I, I really worry about you. And I don't know, there's something fascinating in there about, about Lynch 
wanting simple joys to be the answers to life, like to be the answers to these kinds of problems and the, and the inability of Albert to participate in that or something. I mean, I think it, it's an interesting pair with um, the previous weeks where we saw, you know, Cole watching Albert on the date with Constance, like with such glee on his face, right? I mean, yeah. There's, a, yeah, that, and that's the extent to which I think that there's a real, a, a huge component of Cole's personality, which is Lynch's personality. You, you read the um, interview a few weeks ago in Vulture with the actor, the young Australian actor who plays Richard Horn. Uh, Actually, I didn't. Uh, what, well, what did it's, it have it's, to say? it's fantastic. Pretty easy to to find. It was on uh, the New York New York Magazine's website, Vulture, had an interview with him, and it's one of the first interviews with him since Twin Peaks started. Uh, and uh, you know, which is nice because he's such a scary character. You really have nothing to judge him against as a person because he hasn't been around too much longer, too too long. But uh, somebody from Vulture went and did an interview with him. He had worked with Jennifer Lynch, which is how um, they they, they kind of had this uh, connection. And uh, Lynch called him and asked him to, to play the part, Eamon Farron, right? Yes. And yeah. uh, he says in the interview, he says, um, can I ask what the part is? And Lynch said, no, buddy, not really. Come over here and come into this cool forest and make a cool thing with cool people. I'm like... Right? And so he says, and that's all I had. I jumped on a plane in the morning after we closed the present, and I arrived in Seattle and started shooting. So that's how Lynch pitches his, his, his project to this guy. The cool forest making a cool thing with cool people. <laughs> that's almost a Gordon Cole phrase right there, you know? Yeah. Come on and go to, you know, come to Roswell. Yeah. Thank you, Glenn, for giving us our weekly David Lynch impression. <laughs> Everybody's Normally got I one, do right? It. Yeah. It's so I, last time, I think the last time I had a conversation with David Lynch was actually in Toronto in, oh, wow. 2000, in 2001 when I was there with Premier Magazine. And uh, Premier Magazine, while it existed uh, up until 2001 and then right before 9-11, this party was two days before 9-11. Oof. And uh, we, had, we were doing so well at the time. Our, our Toronto Film Festival party was kind of the Vanity Fair party of, of Toronto. We were doing so well at the time. And this was the last time we did as well. Uh, everybody showed up. Monica Bellucci came early. Um, uh, maybe that's where Rich, Lynch and her met. <laughs> uh, and then Lynch shows up and he's got, uh, he's there from Mulholland drive and he, he got, uh, Naomi Watts on one arm and Laura Elena Herring on the other arm. And he sees me, he says, hello. He says, thanks for the four star review, Glenn. And then he has <laughs> a bite of his, uh, Sicilian pizza. And he says, great pizza. Um, and, uh, it was, it, he was, everybody was so happy. Um, <laughs> great pizza. Yeah. He was, he, and he was absolutely 100, he liked the pizza. <laughs> I, I understand. I think it's, you can definitely get a, you can be guaranteed to get a good reaction out of Lynch when it's something to do with delicious food. Don't, don't make it in his house though. <laughs> the quinoa. There, there are bits and pieces of his personality that come through in this, in this, in this comedy, especially in the comedic parts of, of the show that are just delightful. There is a, there's another big sort of emotional sequence in this episode that we haven't discussed. Yeah. And that's of course, uh, Richard Bamer's big scene where he, uh, finds out about what the, the very bad thing that Richard did and uh, right. tells Ashley Judd about it. It's uh, here's another example of a scene that I can't imagine any other filmmaker, like just reeling out for as long as he does here. I mean, he really, mm -hmm. 
He's it's it's interesting the 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 performers who are getting short shrift and the ones who are getting to spread their wings a bit. And I I wouldn't necessarily have guessed, and it's got nothing to do with with Bamer's quality as an actor. I just would not necessarily have guessed that of everyone, Bamer would be sort of one of the ones getting um, such a spotlight. But but he's been great, and he he nails this scene. Yeah, um, well, I mean, you yeah. don't you don't bring you don't bring that character back to not do something with him, especially someone like Richard, Richard Boehmer. So I, I think that, you know, I, I have to believe that Frost and, and David Lynch were thinking very considerately about, about Boehmer's uh, power as a, as a performer doing this. I mean, it, it's clear how, it's clear how they've kind of adjusted the roles to play to different people's strengths. I mean, to have Russ Tamblin doing, doing that crazy, you know, yeah. quasi Alex Jones things, that's very, that's a very, but that's a huge. That, that's a huge part of, of of what Russ Tamblin's, you know, kind of uh, performance persona has been for a long time. He's always been able to do that kind of thing. And and with Bamer, and I've always loved the fact that the the original show and the 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 return feature um, two of the two of the guys from from Robert Wise's West Side Story. Yeah, um, so lovely. Um, but you know. And 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 that character Bamer plays is always kind of has always been kind of a hard read because you know he's corrupt he's venal he's he's uh, you know he's not a villain but he's not a great he's a kind of a shady he's been kind of a shady guy but mm-hmm. um, it's clear that in the interim that he's experienced a lot that has and it's clear he also compartmentalizes what his experiences has been but. I think not just the scene where he's talking to Ashley Judd's character about it, but the, the scene between him and Sheriff Truman uh, and the kind of deference and respect that Truman shows him, yeah. but also the whole, uh, I'm sorry to have to bring you this news. These are, yeah, and, and I, I really have to give credit to, to Lynch for picking the right actors and just letting them do their thing. You can't really see, you can definitely, and, and the beauty of the casting is, of, of Robert Forster is even in the absence of Michael Antkeen, you can actually imagine there's this negative space that we have where we don't have any actual overt knowledge of a relationship between Frank and Harry Truman. But Robert Forster is such a great and sincere and beautiful actor. And our memories of Michael Antkeen as Harry mm-hmm. are so vivid that we can actually extrapolate that every mm-hmm. time Robert Forster shows up. And that's a tribute, not just to the brilliance of Robert Forster, but, David Lynch's brilliance in, in casting him. It's a role that you know you wouldn't trust the wrong. You, you can't you can't just trust anyone with that role. It's it's a, too important. Yeah, um, Forster is fantastic, and, I, and I'm sure you, you already knew this as well, Glenn. But um, we've mentioned on here as well before that originally Lynch had wanted to cast Forster in the role <clears throat> of Harry Truman. Yeah, so there's a sort of interesting backwards echo again there. But yeah, the the scene with Ben Horn. Um, and both Forster and Ashley Judd, I, I found it quite heartbreaking. Watching it again the second time, I find it somehow even more heartbreaking. And it's, again, it's Lynch's kind of mastery at, 
evoking the sort of very depth, the depth of pain that comes after something like these sort of horrible, violent incidents. And again, we have another one of these sort of like out, out waves or ripples or something of how violence affects people sort of two and three down, two and three lines down the road, right? It's not just bodily destruction. It's all of these other ways in which violence exists in this world. And, um, Again, Lynch doesn't doesn't only show sort of violence directly. Here we have this really beautiful displacement where Ben receives this really upsetting, really ter- terrible news and sort of like makes this psychological move towards reminiscing about a story from his childhood and this idea about it being his relationship to his father and, and how much this meant to him. And I find the, the move that he makes there of just sort of having to retreat from the reality of the situation, like the writing there, I don't know if that's Frost or Lynch, but the writing that's... that designs that retreat from the moment and, and Ashley Judd sort of crying in the background. I, I, I find it, I find it as upsetting as sort of anything else on the show, like as touching as anything else we've seen so far. Um, and I, I just found it really stunning. Bamer is great. Uh, but I would also add to there's some, there's some interesting stuff going on here where, where Bamer is sort of saying that this child, Richard Horn had no father and this is the problem. And, and as soon as you start thinking when Audrey comes back in a few scenes later, just what a sort of shit father uh, he was to, to Audrey when Audrey was younger, right? There's some complete sort of absentee, miserable father. And I, I, there's some really interesting layers of the history of the show in that whole scene. It's always interesting to examine these uh, these scenes in, in the light of, of how some people feel that, you know, Lynch is so disconnected from normal emotion and reality. But yeah. these are, situ- you know, what's uh, Casey Kasem's... Uh, this is a situation we can all relate to, um, you know, um, whether you have kids or pets or neither, um, you know, that's that's there. You know, there, there's that awareness and there's that uh, not all, you know, damp, uncomfortable, frustrated desire, alienation. Yeah. It's, it's stuff from the guts, you know. Yeah, definitely. The uh, we, we've sort of teased it a couple times, but we haven't really delved into the Audrey sequence. And one of the reasons I'm kind of hesitant to, to be honest, is. You've kind of mentioned these uh, the metatextual angle, uh, Kate, and the Audrey sequence is so loaded for a variety of reasons. First of all, fans have been clamoring to see this character for weeks and weeks and weeks. As of we, we've been yeah. we've been wondering where's where's Audrey? Like we're waiting to get to the fireworks factory for the last six weeks. Um, you know, there's all the as you would say, Kate scuttlebutt about you know the whole Cooper and Audrey relationship in the, in the original show and, you know, possible behind the scenes machinations there and, you know, people's perceptions of that and, you know, blah, blah, blah. All this stuff is, is floating around. And then um, we get a scene that, to be honest, I'm surprised I haven't seen the joke more that, uh, that maybe David Lynch gets off on being withholding because (laughs) uh, you know, that sequence when we do finally get it, first of all, as I mentioned, the way it's just dropped on you. Yeah. Like, she is center frame. She's just there. Uh, I, I gasped audibly. I don't know yeah. if anyone else me, did that. Me as well. Um, but, and then the fact that her entire, it's what, it's like a six or seven minute scene. And it consists entirely, it would seem, of discussing characters we have no context for. Uh, unless, of course, the Billy is also the one that Andy was supposed to meet up with or the one who is being looked for at the diner. Um, even then, that's a, that's an incredibly tenuous connection. I wouldn't be surprised if they're totally different Billies because that's totally the sort of thing the show would do. To have her, you know, be 
conversing with this character with whom she clearly has this immense amount of complicated history um, that does very much feel, Kate, like you said, that we're like we're being dropped into a scene from Invitation to Love, even down to the acting style. Yeah. Um, but I, I will say, like, I, I don't want to say too much about the scene because I feel like we need to see where how the show deals with this stuff. But I will say that I'm really impressed with Sherilyn Fenn for how after 26 years, like, even though the character is very different um, and I realize it's also a function of costuming. It didn't feel like I was just watching Sherilyn Fenn play acting Audrey. Like I felt like I was seeing old Audrey, which yeah. is like yeah, really I impressive. Yeah, I felt the same way. Yeah, I felt the same way, and I also felt like the way the whole sequence is shot, it's pretty normal except for all the pauses, you know, and the and the the blank space. Everything yeah. about the shooting, the the way it's edited, is is pretty uh, standard. You know, you, when you're watching Lynch stuff, you can kind of tell depending on the tenor of the sequence how he's going to use film language like in in part eight when there uh when there's that long shot of the castle the the big castle that looks like something out of edgar elmer's the black cat and the the woman and the giant are in there and he shoots them in that one room with the uh with these um with the with the old style phonograph looping over and over again, and he shoots them in that room having an exchange. You know, you just know watching it that they're not going to have cut to medium shot of giant, cut to medium shot of woman yeah. having yeah. the exchange. You know he's going to hold on that tableau. There's just a sense if you've watched a lot of Lynch, you know from the general tenor of the um, uh, of of what he's shooting, how he's going to edit it. So in the scene with, with, with Audrey, it's done almost as a, as a bog standard, you know, argument scene in a television show, except for the fact that there's, you know, this huge amount, uh, the, the verbal content, this huge amount of information that has no context. And then the just the vituperation and the um, just sitting there saying nothing. So yeah. you could go. What I'm trying to say is, you could go either way. <laughs> I was like everyone, maybe listening to the show. When the show, when the sequence first started, I will definitely agree that I was on board with the sort of frustration around that scene. I mean, I think one of the unfortunate things that I'm seeing happening online in relation to this episode is people, I think, are maybe extending their frustration with particularly the final scenes, the Audrey scene and the Roadhouse scene, backwards over the whole episode, which is really unfortunate because I think the first two thirds of the episode are not that sort of level of frustrating and they are doing really wonderful interesting things um, but anyway so these last two scenes are their own particular beast and I think Lynch is is really doing everything he can to to sort of mess with us in that Audrey scene. I mean, on every level, we are not getting what we thought we were going to get. And I think at first that it's completely understandable why that would frustrate an audience. That's what Lynch is trying to do to you. Um, I mean, I think the question maybe that's going to be interesting is is to why that is so particularly yeah being attached to Audrey here. And I think one thing that I've sort of picked up on trying to think about this in the last couple of days is the way in which. The Audrey plus, uh, it's Charles is her husband, right? Charlie? Or Audrey and Charlie? Yeah, the, Charlie. The, Charlie. The way that they, as a pair, structurally map very interestingly onto Catherine Martell and Pete from the first show. And and so this brings up all of these really interesting ideas around, um, I think Matt Crooms, one of our previous guests, talked about this. The idea that on the original run of the show, 
there was such a sense of a clear idea where the young the young people on the show, whether you're thinking about it in terms of the diegetic reality of them all being in a small town and this is sort of the direction their lives will inevitably take, or the soap opera genre constraints of how young young actor types, like young character types, inevitably as the actors get older, they get put into the kind of older actor types. Um, what ends up happening is that the young characters sort of just become these older characters, uh, and the older characters have a very clear set of roles. And you know, bitchy angry woman is like a is a pretty common <laughs> soap opera older woman trope, right? I mean, it's not very common, and this is true not only about soap opera, but like television and maybe kind of a wider moving image framework is like it's. I'm not sure what people thought they were going to get with Audrey 27 years later. Like, I, I think Lynch is sort of pointing out something interesting about the idea that, like, we want her to sort of maintain this, uh, I'm not sure, like, this sort of joyful innocence and naivete she had as an 18-year-old. But it's 27 years later. I mean, I think it's really interesting that what we end up being given is this sort of Catherine Martell-esque character that seems to have really been through the ringer and is quite bitter and, and miserable and unhappy and taking it out on people around her. And I And involved in this relationship, where the partner doesn't seem to mind that she's cheating on him. And, and I don't know. There's some interesting things going on there in terms of genre stuff as well. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm sort of surprised at the vehemence with which some people have been uh, reacting to this episode as if it's this huge, not just that it's a huge letdown, but suddenly the whole house of cards has collapsed. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. whatever happened to trust Lynch, you know? Uh, <laughs> I mean, clearly, clearly he's not unaware that this episode, that this part, Gosh, I, I need some aversion training. That this part has a very different character from all the other parts. So there's a there's a there's a there's a method uh, there's a method to the madness here. Yeah, we just don't know what it is, and we may never right. know. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's really the thing with Lynch. He may never, you know, that's the that's the, that's part of the joy and dread of watching this. He may not let us know. The thing about Lynch's work is, though, the more you watch it. Um, the more it makes sense, you know, uh, it doesn't necessarily, Lynch doesn't make puzzle films. He's not a land Rob Grier. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily follow that X, the causality of things is not, um, is not laid out in a way where you, you put a key in a lock and it, and it opens, you know, but they always make emotional sense. Yeah. You know, Lost Highway makes emotional sense. Mulholland Drive makes emotional sense. I think people are, are going to have expectations that Twin Peaks has, is going to have to make sense in more than just an emotional way. And I think, honestly, the creators of the show are, are aiming to give us that. But the thing about Lynch is you kind of never know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just I, like in life. I, uh, <laughs> I have one sort of final question I want to throw out there because I'm uh, I'm – the, the the glory of hosting the show is that I get to ask the questions and not answer them. Um, <laughs> I really don't have an answer. Um, my question is, what do we think is is the significance, if anything, of the use of of repetition? And specifically in this episode, we get we get our I think it's our third or fourth sequence of Jacoby's ranting his uh, his Doctor Amp Radio Hour, and we specifically right. get this. Uh, this repetition of his infomercial complete with the full screen, um, you know, golden, golden shovel, uh, hotline. And, and the I, shots of, uh, Nadine. Yes. Um, yeah. Looking yeah. on, looking on approvingly. Yes. Yeah. And like, and I, I couldn't help but wonder like what did, did he think we missed it the first time? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I for for me, I thought that that was again maybe just a sort of really impressive move on Lynch's part to to just mess with us that much more when Audrey appears, right? Because I actually thought when we were watching the Jacoby stuff, not just that it was sort of um like content repetition, but that again, yeah, like actual shots were being repeated from previous mm-hmm. episodes. And I think some of it was just Lynch trying to lull us a little bit, like letting us turn off our brain a little bit. That's what I did. I was like, oh, this is the scene that we've seen before. Like, I, I you know, it's fine. Like I kind of, the Jacoby stuff is interesting, but again, as you say, we've seen it so much that I think your tendency is to just be like, I get where this is going. I can take like a moment to recuperate. And then boom, we cut to Audrey in the middle of the frame. And, uh, but, but, you're, but, yeah, but it's almost, it's almost, few, it's almost like a few, Fugue, because the, you talk about the musical structure in the first few parts, we are treated to the repetition of Jacoby painting the shovels. Right yeah. now, we're treated to the repetition of Jacoby's actual, uh, you know, broadcast. And you know, he, I think he's suggesting that in, in the case of the broadcast, he's actually he, this is actually happening in the linear timeline that the broadcast is being repeated, and that Nadine yeah. is getting the same enjoyment out of it. That's one idea, but it's yeah. also it's also the the whole repetition is a is a constant in Lynch's work. You know, this is the girl from Mulholland Drive. Um, the scene in Blue Velvet where uh, Jack Nance's character keeps clapping his hands in uh, Jeffrey's face and saying, "I'm Paul." You know, that's uh, the repetition is a harbinger of dread. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's some, and again, it 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 could just be this could just be a, a an iteration of Lynch's own dread about, you know, the political situation and the media in this country right now. And it may not have a larger narrative function, but, uh, those, they're certainly like everything else. It's always interesting to, uh, to, to think about. And, and, and as you say, it's function in this part, uh, relative to, to being the prologue to the Audrey scene. It's part and parcel of, of bringing back, you know, I wish I could make a chart, you know, where you could actually do a diagramming of portions of each part and the order in which how many times they go back to Twin Peaks and feature the, those characters from the yeah. original series in that context and how they're blocked together. And here we had, you know, that particular block. What is it, you know, why are we spending time here for this amount of time and not another amount of time? Well, I mean, I'm not sure if you have a, another prompt lined up there, Simon, but I, I can't help it. We've we've now reached the hour mark, and we have yet to talk about Grace Zabriskie and the Palmer House, which oh is oh my god, you're yeah, right. which is such such a key element of this episode, and and really truly like. I think on its own, we can maybe all agree as serious fans of, of Fire Walk Me in the show that like that sequence alone is like it, it just makes the return like worth it. I mean, it is so amazing. And, it, and again, just you, you can't know, say yeah. nothing's happening in this episode. Who is in the house? Well, yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, all of that. Right, I, yeah, that's and, a huge and, thing. And and just generally, what is going on with Sarah? I mean, like, what is happening? I I mean, Grace Zabriskie is so like Simon has said this before that she is just such a like a quintessential kind of Lynchian figure. Like the way these these line readings, she just manages to get such dread and such I don't know, like just strange affect out of every little sentence, and it is brilliant. Like she's yeah. amazing in this. Well, and there's a and there's a real frisson between like how like Hawk's just open hearted concern and yeah. Sarah's just like black hearted, just 
just ruined refusal. Yeah. Ruined refusal to to engage and just she isn't. They are not living in the same universe. And like I obviously Lynch and his direction and the and the scoring is a big part of this. But like I really cannot think of a lot of actors who could ring like dread and existential terror out of turkey jerky (laughs) (laughs) yeah that music kicks in and i actually i was wondering if you knew simon because i know it's music from the original run but is it like fire walk with me music or is it i think it's fire walk with me maybe it's fire yeah fire walk with me music but um i don't know i think there are so many fascinating things going on with that scene and and zabriskie's performance is obviously part of it and like these narrative questions about what's going on with her house and and what's sort of happening to her specifically is all there but the other thing that i just thought was so fascinating about that scene was um you know, we're not that far into the episode and we, we cut to the Laura Palmer house, this French shot of the, of the Palmer house. And I think my husband jumped like a, like a foot off the couch. I mean, it really, just the image alone has such, I think, importance in, in a really, as, as, uh, Glenn put it, like a dreadful way. And for, the fan. And the fan, like the, oh my God, the, the fan just doubles down on it. But all of that stuff. And, and I think again, it plays into an interesting arc in the whole episode, which is Lynch's sort of fascination with like haunted, places like the idea that once violence marks something it it doesn't ever really quite go away and like that that will always sort of be there i mean and the laura palmer character in the show plays a similar role right of kind of continually reminding us of these effects of something down the line but the palmer household um i just wanted to use this to wedge in a point i wanted to make in our pilot episode ages ago sorry the episode of um where we talked about the pilot of the return the premiere of the return because i think it really is relevant to what's going on with the palmer household here which is that when we first see grace zabriskie in the the premiere I think it's at the end of the the near the end of the two-parter the premiere episode she's sort of sitting on her couch uh watching this like really giant huge tv and it's showing this really blue image of um lions sort of like viscerally killing each other and attacking each other and and she's sort of watching it with this like weird almost perverse fascination and it's a really unsettling scene but one thing that's so fascinating about it is behind her on the wall is the mirror where originally Bob was reflected in the mirror. This was the lore of Twin Peaks, right? This is the thing that made Frank Silva play Bob, was that the actor was, or the, the set person was caught in this mirror, and this is how Bob was born. And, and here, instead, you have this shot of these, like, animals and these lions sort of ripping each other apart in a, in a very kind of Bob-like iconography, almost. And I don't know, just this idea that Lynch manages to imbue this household with such terror. And, and also, I wanted to mention as well, the hospital scene that we get early on, where we get the tracking shot up the hospital hallway and mm. it's right out of the original show and it's really unsettling again like really got me off guard anyway the uh well and also you kind of expect that to be audrey right like, exactly i because, definitely i definitely expected it to be audrey yes yeah because you know that she's in a coma and anyway that was kind of a, a fun double fake out that we got um yeah i'm not sure i have much more to add about the grace of stuff except that it's it's great and terrifying and and sad yeah it sort of breaks my heart that, like, the show... I mean, if people are getting their hopes up now, I think they should maybe get used to this idea. I don't think the show is going to win anything like awards because sh- <laughs> yeah, shows yeah. this unusual just don't, but we should just... Let's just give Grace Zabriskie an award right now because yeah. she deserves I, one. <laughs> I, I kind of want to also give an award to those obviously, like, untrained actors who are working at the grocery store. The grocery store. <laughs> store! Oh, man! <laughs> that guy, the guy helping her, he's just so out of it and such a clear sort of non-actor teenager. That that was a very funny, like, move from Grace Zabriskie to him. It was very unsettling. Anyway, we should be uh, wrapping up, unless uh, unless anyone else has any final thoughts on, on this episode of The Return before we go. I'm kind of shocked that the, he's introducing so much um, narrative material as we're getting so much, so much closer to the end. 
Um, you know, and, and I'm not, I'm not sure what that means, but I'm not going to let it make me uncomfortable. <laughs> well, it's still um, I, six hours to go, people. That's a lot of TV time. That is a lot of TV time. That is true. true. Um, I, I actually just wanted to ask one quick, maybe wrap up question for Glenn Simon. Um, yeah, do yeah. You, so, so Glenn, one of the things that like, like I've written about it in relation to the show, and I think we've talked about it a little bit here, is this this question of maybe where the return fits in with within a larger arc of what Lynch is doing as a filmmaker, and the sense that the return seems very much to be more in tune with something like, for lack of a better term, like the despairing end of Lynch's uh, body of work, right? I mean, the body of work that maybe tends a little more towards the kind of, if not overtly political, then at least sort of grounded in the kind of like material reality. Like, I think you compared it to Eraserhead. I mean, this reflection of sort of a, a very sorry state of affairs of the world. And I don't know, I'm just wondering if like, if, if that's sort of how you've been thinking about the return, or if it's more plugged into his whole career. I don't know. No, to a certain extent, although I think it's less, I mean, if you look at Inland Empire, which I think of as the, the definitive abstract expressionist work uh, in yeah. Lynch's uh, career, I think it's more um, more hopeful and more, uh, what's Ira Glass's favorite word, uh, relatable. It's more relatable <laughs> than, than Inland Empire, which was very, which pushed the viewers very hard uh, mm. in terms of, in terms of a really uh, tough, unpleasant content you still you still get in in this twin peaks you still get characters that uh, you know uh, to to use the conventional um you know ideas of what entertainment should afford you still get characters that you care about you know yeah which was something that was rel. you know the things that, and in inland empire you had very much of a remove uh so so that kind of darkness i think is very different from the kind of darkness that twin peaks is serving up that said this is serving up plenty of darkness and, and the, 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 the stuff that it's, the ways that it's willing to, to, to serve up that darkness are, 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 are still, even in, in this day and age, practically taboo breaking. When, uh, when Richard Horn runs that kid over, you don't usually show that kind yeah. of stuff. You don't, you don't see it. You don't stage it. Filmmakers don't do that. Yeah. Uh, and here Lynch did, and yet he did it in a way that was not, um, that did not make you feel like the filmmaker was being morally reprehensible. Yeah. You know, uh, and this is part of what makes him a great artist. So, you know, I think in the overall tenor of the of the piece, he's still, you know, he's still honoring some some conventions, but um, you know, he's manipulating them and he's using them to to ends that are very very personal. But also, I think you know, he's he's trying to say something about the state of the world. I mean. Part eight, and, and, and as I wrote in my New York Times uh, streaming column about the use of uh, Penderecki's uh, Three Nodi for the Victims of Hiroshima, now that's a very, you know, I mean, think of the title, Three Nodi for the, it's, it's a literal piece, you know, mm. and he's being very literal, in a sense, about the evils that, that nuclear war, or the possibility of nuclear war, has unleashed on the world. This is obviously something that concerns him as a person a great deal and should concern us. It's something that we, you know, uh, you know, remember when Martin Amos was writing these books of essays about how, you know, nuclear proliferation was the defining problem of, of our time. We've become, you know, society has become rather complacent about, about this. And uh, I think the recent events in North Korea have, uh, mm-hmm have maybe woken us up a little, woken people up a little about this, but the, you know, nuclear war, the devastation of it is something that's clearly of great concern for him, even if he's using it 
to create, you know, to, to, to serve as a, a doorway into these metaphorical ideas of evil. So, yeah. um, I mean, the sincerity of his concern, I think, has never been more, more clearly articulated in any of his art as, as it is here. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I do think that this, it's maybe not in the most uh, obvious way, but like we've had guests on in the past, particularly on the original run, sort of talking about this question of like whether Lynch is political, whether Twin Peaks sort of has anything like a political sensibility or, I mean, and I think the return is very much put put paid to that as a question. I mean, I think it's it's very clear that there is a political sensibility here, whether or not it is working in, in ways that you could find outside of Lynch is a different question. But I, I do think there are really fascinating, really interesting things going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it has no, I mean, short. He, and, he, and he's fascinated by violence, but he's also yeah. very, very terrified of it and repelled by it. Yeah. He doesn't advocate it. He doesn't like it. He finds it fascinating. He finds its impact on bodies fascinating. But it's not a thing where he, he's not glib. The thing about Lynch is, you know, especially in interviews, you know, he has this, and I think his persona is relatively close to his actual personality, but his way of talking suggests someone who's kind of, you know, maybe... You don't. You, you, it's kind of tough to know what he. But, but I think I, I don't. I don't think he's ever been glib. I, I think he's not a glib filmmaker at all. And and here he's, he's putting his heart on his sleeve in a lot of ways that are uh, that I haven't seen before. But I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm not surprised by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we'll we'll know for sure if Twin Peaks is political if we get another scene of Ben handling the uh, Miriam's medical bills and then Cole pokes his head in and says, "Single pair now." <laughs> then we'll know. Then we'll know. Fix your heart or die. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. We uh, we got to wrap up. Um, so anyway, you can find uh, me on Twitter at Hollow Minds. You can find Kate on Twitter at Cinement. That's C I N E M E N T. You can find uh, new episodes of this show streaming on SortedCinema.com. And uh, Glenn, I wanted to give you a chance if you've had any uh, recent work or upcoming work you wanted to plug. You know, I'm 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 featured pretty regularly at RogerEbert.com, and and uh, look for me on Fridays and Sundays in the New York Times. Um, what's what's your what's your Twitter handle, Glenn? If people want to find you there, Glenn underscore Kenny. Oh, great! Very Fantastic. simple. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you so much, Glenn, for joining us, and thank you, Kate, as always. We will be back in roughly a week's time. 